You should have a loose piece of paper, a little folded paper. It says, Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. Um, We have done this the last five summers. We take a break from our sermon series, if necessary, and we spend the summer months working our way psalm by psalm through the psalms, what's called the Psalter. Um, We are picking up today in Psalm 55. So if you have a Bible, you're more welcome to open there. It's probably right in the middle. If you just open your Bible, there will be the psalms. We're in Psalm 55. Um, I like what's kind of driving our theme. We spend each summer in the Psalms, so hopefully in the next, you know, 10 years or so, we'll have a sermon on each of the Psalms and have taken you through the entirety of God's hymn book. Um, But we will sometimes slightly change kind of like the the subtitle, if you will. And uh, you'll notice on the front there, Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. This is going to be what kind of drives this summer is thinking through the reality and the truth that the book of Psalms is a compilation, a highly structured compilation, I should add, of prayers. And these prayers were sung, or to our ears, they would have been more like a chant, if you've heard like a Gregorian or Middle Eastern chanting. The Psalms were prayers put to song, chanted. And in the Psalms, we find exactly that, an anatomy of the soul. There is not an emotion that you've experienced that the Psalms don't have. Sadness, it's in the Psalms. Anger, rage, it's in the Psalms. If you ever wanted to hurt somebody, it's in the Psalms. I'm actually going to see it today. Happiness, it's in the Psalms. Joy, it's in the Psalms. Anxiety, it's in the Psalms, in ours today. The Psalms are glorious. Again, the Psalter, the book of 150 Psalms, is highly structured. It's been put together intentionally. I could nerd out the rest of our time on those things, but I will spare you from that. We, I, I kind of stole the anatomy of the soul. I should also point out to Lauren Ebel, who was in first service, made our graphic for this. It was between this and then like four smiley faces with different emotions. I liked this one. Um, just, just the masks going at happiness, sadness, anger. All of the emotions are in the Psalms. If you look at the very front of your worship booklet, sorry to go back and forth, but I want you to see this. Roger and I, whoever's the preacher that Sunday, puts these pre-service reflections on there. Um, He took a poll, Roger took a poll two weeks ago, and about half of you raised your hands, so that's great that you get here in time to read the pre-service reflections. Um, So thank you for doing that. We're going to keep doing it as long as we keep having about half of you reading it. It's worth it. But the first one there is a quote from a reformer named John Calvin, where I get the subtitle for our psalm's message, the anatomy of the soul. I just want to read it. Look at John Calvin. In the preface to his commentary on psalms, says this, I have been accustomed to call this book of psalms, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The book of Psalms, friends, is our friend. The book of Psalms is 
for us. I hope that you will join me throughout the summer in praying these psalms, praying these prayers, singing these prayers. One of the categories in the book of Psalms is what is commonly called a lament. A lament has made a comeback in the last, I'd say, five or ten years in Christian literature as a category. There's books being written on it. There's more lamenting songs being written, even for Christian worship, Um, and that's good. And I'm saying that because our psalm this morning, Psalm 55, is a lament. It's what we call an individual lament. There are laments in the Psalms that are corporate, like the entire people of God getting together to cry and to complain and to pray to the Lord, but there are individual laments, and this is one of them. It's David lamenting. Psalm 55, other than maybe Psalm 13, Psalm 55 might be the poster child lament. It is like the the par excellence of lament, and you'll see why in just a moment, but it's also arguably the darkest period in David's life. And this is the prayer, the song he writes for us. So what I want to see, and these are my, basically my two points for us this morning. If I were to su- summarize all this up, I want you to see that first, lament is an appropriate response to betrayal and burden and pain. Lament is a legitimate response. But secondly, what I want you to see We can't forget this. This is what makes lament, lament. The second piece is that lament is intended to bring us to trust in the Lord as we cast our anxieties on him. Lament, biblical lament, Christian lament, to be lament has to have those things. It's an appropriate response in betrayal and pain and suffering. And yet lament is intended to bring us to trust in the Lord. So Psalm 55 it should be in there. You can follow along as we're doing this. We're not going to read it all up front like we normally do with a text because it's so long. I'm going to read it as we go. Um, but if we were, I, I could cut Psalm 55 in half. Verses 1 through 15 being that first piece of lament. It's the sadness. It's the wrestling. It's the raw emotion, as we'll see throughout the morning. And then in verses 16 through 23, we see a turn. We see David's heart turn to trust in the Lord in the midst of the pain. And so we're just going to take those in order. First, lament is an appropriate response to betrayal and pain and suffering and hurt. This is verses 1 through 15. But first, a word on lament. I've said it uh, probably 30 times already, the word lament. But what is it? Lament, the word itself, actually just means a loud cry. It's a howl a yell. It's a grunt, an expression of pain and grief. And why that's important, why I want to land here for just a moment is that, and we've said this before from the pulpit, so it might not be new to many of you, one-third of the Psalms are laments. God's inspired and inerrant hymn book that you are to pray and to sing as God's people One out of three is a complaint, is sad, would have a minor key. But it's not just sadness. Biblically speaking, there are unique pieces to a lament that make it a lament. Mark Vrogop, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, the subtitle, Discovering the Grace of Lament, 
It's a fun book. It's a great book. Um, he says this, quote, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Did you hear that? Lament is rooted in this. It is a man or woman of God in the midst of pain and they are wrestling with the seeming paradox that God is good on one hand, but this stinks. How can that be true? I'm in pain, I'm hurting. Where are you, Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13. And yet over and over again, you say you're good. How is it true that you're good and my life is sideways? God says, I'm not going to answer that question entirely, but I give you lament to deal with this paradox. Vrogop in his book goes on to helpfully distill lament down into this definition. And I think this will help us. If you're a note taker, I'll repeat it. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Biblical lament is praying. It's a, it's a prayer in the midst of pain. It's in the heart of pain, but that prayer in pain leads us to trust in God. That is the biblical category. That is lament. And so let's look at David's lament. Psalm 55 Verses 1 through 15 is his lament, his complaint, his cry, and all of the, the check marks, all the boxes are checked for a typical lament. First, you always see a plea, a cry for help, we could call. Look at verses 1 and 2. That's exactly what we see. David's plea. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan. Maybe you've been there. Lord, help me. Hear me, God. I'm on my knees. I'm on my face. Life is not where I thought it would be. I need you. Lament starts with a plea. But often in lament and maybe rightly so, we air our frustration. We voice our frustration. We tell the Lord what's going on. We don't think, you know, Lord's sovereign. He knows it anyway. So I'll just say, hey, hey Lord, help. In Jesus' name, amen. No, the Lord wants us to spend time describing our situation, describing why we're feeling the way we are, what's going on in our life. Let me show you. Verses three through five. This is David's frustration. Why is he moaning and complaining and lamenting? Verse 3, because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Just he compounds all the, the things, all the feelings. He has literal enemies trying to kill him. They have a grudge against him and they are wicked. He's being oppressed. His heart is in anguish. 
Many believe it's actual physiological, physical things going on because of the state of his heart, his, his, his insides. You've been there? So eaten up, so anxious, so downcast, your body's starting to get out of whack. The terrors of death have fallen around me, fear and trembling. He is surrounded by anxiety. And what do you often, if we're being honest, want to do when that occurs in your life? Anxieties all around, darkness around me, bad guys, bad gals coming after me. I want to fight or flight. David's psalm has both of them. He just goes flight first and then fight. Look at verses six through eight. He wants to fly away. Oh, I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. What does his heart want to do? Get in his car, drive away until he runs out of gas, and then get out of the car and keep walking. I've wanted to do that. And I'm guessing you have too. Life is so sideways. Things seem so dark. I'm, I, I'm, I'm trapped. I can't get out of this. I can't beat this. I just got to get out. Oh, to use David's language, that I had wings like a dove. I would need, with my size, maybe more like a couple eagle's wings. But I, I would fly away. Get me out of here. Can't take it anymore. But he also has the other side of my heart, at least. No, I'll stay but I'm going to punch back. I'm going to take it out on everybody else around me. I'm going to fight. Flight or fight. Verses 9 through 11. Let's look at David's fight. Destroy. (laughs) How about that for a start? Have you used that word in prayer? Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Again, that's likely that his enemies are getting inside. They're close to him. Day and night they go around it, that's the city, on its walls. And iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Now let's look at the real anger. Look at verse 15. This is just wild. Let death steal over them. Just cover them like a blanket. Just let death take them. It gets even better. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is their dwelling place and in their heart. For there's no way to soften this. The inspired book of prayer just had David saying in prayer, God, send them to hell alive. I told you it was raw. I told you this was all the emotions. And before you start looking down your nose at somebody, have you thought it? Get them, Lord. Even if it's righteous anger, even if it's true wickedness that you're seeing. Send them to hell. That phrase, let them go down to Sheol alive, is used in one other place passage that you might not have been recently reading in the book of Numbers. 
In Numbers 16, as I retell the story, more and more nods happen in first service, so you might, you might pick this up. Moses is God's man. He's the prophet of God. Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, but people start getting impatient. Forty years is a long time to wait for what the Lord promised, and there's a rebellion. There's a group of guys that have had enough of Moses, and they're like, I'm taking over. The man's name was Korah. He had a couple of, of hood rat buddies named Dathan and Abiram and all of their families. Rebelled against Moses and said, down with Moses, down with Aaron, I'm taking over. They stage a coup, friends. They start headed toward, heading towards Moses to take over and Moses says, hold up, let's do something cool. I'm gonna set up a test. Moses says, if, if the Lord is with me, Moses, the ground's going to open up and swallow these guys with all of their family. Guess what happens? In verse 30 of Numbers 16, the ground opens its mouth and swallows them all up with everything that belonged to them, and they went down alive into Sheol. David is very familiar with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. David is saying, like that, God, get my enemies. You can open up the earth and swallow them. Do it now. Let them go down to Sheol alive. They hurt me. Lord, destroy my foes. Send them to hell and wipe them out. Now, that's a rather broad range of emotions and maybe just a normal day in your life. I don't, I don't know. But a plea, help, Lord. Frustration, this is going on. That's going on. My enemies are here. Death is all around me. I need you. Give me wings. I'm out of here. I want to fly away. Actually, I'll stay. Send them to hell. Open up the ground and swallow them. Anger, rage, Often our laments probably include most of those elements at some point to varying degrees possibly. But I don't want to miss a key point in this. What makes a biblical lament biblical is that David goes through all of these emotions with the Lord. He does it in prayer. He says some wild things in prayer. He sings some strange things and chants, send them to Sheol alive. Biblical lament, friends, is with the Lord. It's not just general complaining. That's sinful. Biblical lament is working through your emotions and naming your things with God. Notice, he pleads. He cries out to the Lord. Not to social media, not to his friends, not in a blog post, on his knees before his God, the one who can actually help, his covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. He expresses his frustration. He rehashes the events of history and tells the Lord in prayer. He doesn't just vent, he doesn't just gossip to whoever will listen, that's not lament. He does business with the Lord. He confesses his temptation to flee. 
I really do want to get out of here. It'd be easier to run. I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable. And he tells that to God in prayer. The God who loves him and cares for him. And even if he did flee on wings like a dove, would go with him. And lastly, he takes his anger, his rage. Let the earth open up and swallow my enemies. He takes that anger to the righteous judge of the universe. He names his anger and rage and asks for judgment, but he does so unto the Lord. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of cautioning us here to not make lament just a general cry for help, just a general sadness. Biblical lament is not just shouting frustrations to whoever will hear. Complaint here, complaint there, complaint here, complaint there. See, I'm just lamenting the Psalms did it. Whether it's in person or virtual, that's not lament. Don't miss this fact. Christian lament, brothers and sisters of New City, biblical lament can include anger, frustration, pleas for help, sadness and tears. They often do, but it's with the Lord, to the Lord, in the Lord's presence. It's called prayer. It's called song. It's called quiet and meditation with Jesus. But friends, we haven't even gotten to the rough patch yet. We're not even at the dark point of the psalm. David is not just wrestling through these realities because he's got enemies. He doesn't have the Egyptians in mind here. He doesn't, have, uh, he doesn't have the Philistines in mind here. He does use the word enemies. He has enemies coming for him. But friends, it's worse than you think. Because the friend, oh, oh, I just gave it away. The enemy that David is resisting and praying about was once his dear friend. It's a buddy, it's a companion that turned his back on David and is coming for him. Look at verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. There's the betrayal. Most scholars are in agreement here that this is, the historical context is 2 Samuel 15 and following. All that means is it's not 1 Samuel. It's not when David's just an ordinary man. He's not an up-and-comer, normal dude, in the court of Saul, King Saul at the time. We have those psalms. We're going to see some this summer. The superscription tells us David wrote this while on the run and in the cave of Adullam, for example. This, the context of Psalm 55, is later. David's on top of the world. He's King David in what is often called the golden age of Israel's history. They've kicked butt and taken names. 
and there's peace in the land. There's more land under Israel, under King David than ever before. He is king. He's ruling. But because of some specific circumstances and the way he was handling his affairs, David messes some things up in his house. Likely because of a real possibility of his poor fathering. Because of some real blunders that he makes, he has a son named Absalom who revolts and rebels against his dad. Absalom is on his way from Hebron to Jerusalem to kill his dad and to take the throne from David. Betrayal. Now, I don't think that's what verse 13 is talking about. I don't think David is talking about his son Absalom, although he's leading the revolt. Why? Well, scholars tell me that verse 13 says, it's you, a man, my equal, look, my companion, my familiar friend. Those phrases are never used of children, of offspring, of familial ties. I don't think he's talking about Absalom, even though Absalom's a grown man on his way to kill him. I think David has other faces in mind when he's lamenting betrayal at the hand of a friend. It's not all that important as to exactly who the identity of the man is, but I have to at least wonder if he's thinking about a man named Ahithophel. It is fun to say. You want to you try Ahithophel? Go, go ahead. Ahithophel. Just kind of throw it out there. Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a man who was once David's right-hand man. He was in the room when it happened. I'm just all over Hamilton right now. He was David's trusted advisor. He walked with God in God's house. Verse 14, and took sweet counsel together. Ahithophel is the one who David would go to when he got in a pinch. He's like, I need your wisdom. I'm not sure on this. Ahithophel will know. You can read all about Ahithophel throughout the Samuels. He was also Bathsheba's grandfather. I think Ahithophel is the most likely candidate for this equal my companion, my familiar friend. Ahithophel was on the run with David early in his life. Ahithophel was in the court of David. Ahithophel was David's familiar friend and close companion. What happens to Ahithophel? When Absalom starts the revolt and starts marching on Jerusalem, Ahithophel changes teams and joins Absalom. And he becomes Absalom's right-hand man. Betrayal at the hands of a friend. Another reason why it's not really necessary to nail down exactly who it is, although again, I think Ahithophel is the leading candidate, is that in verse 15, which we already read, it's kind of like the send him to hell verse, it's plural. I think Absalom's on his way, on a horse or camel or whatever, leading the charge of a band of warriors to kill his dad, to take the throne, and David's looking out there, and there's a bunch of his friends. There's a bunch of the guys that he was in war with decades before. There were prayer partners. There were guys who helped him compose some of these psalms. Men who knew him better than anybody else, and they're coming to stab me and take my throne with my boy. Talk about pain. 
lament. So David pins these words for us. I don't want to take away any of David's pain, but it is important for me to make an aside here to remember that in the midst of our lamenting, wherever you are, whatever you're lamenting, truly, it would do good to double check your heart and your life in your lamenting. Why am I saying this? Well, because David, the betrayed one, is the king of betrayal. Literally. David once had a close friend, my familiar friend, my equal, my companion, one of his mightiest men, went by the name of Uriah. Uriah had a wife named Bathsheba. David liked Bathsheba. David took Bathsheba. Moms and dads, they did some things. They knew one another. And David murdered Uriah so he could have her. David is lamenting exactly what he did to someone. It doesn't take away David's emotions. It doesn't take away David's lament. It was a real blunder. But I've noticed in some of my laments, I'm decrying this person saying that or this going on in the world, and this is happening. Can you believe this person did this to me, Lord? You're anointed one. And two weeks ago, I did the same thing to somebody. Lament is real. Use it. It is legitimate. But even in the lamenting, check your own self. Check your own heart. Because I think it can further humble us and make the lament sweeter. I have to wonder that as David's pinning this, he's like, oh dear. I did that. And I'll bet you it drove him lower in prayer. So have you been betrayed? Experiencing hurt? Is pain seemingly all around you and I can't seem to get out? Make Psalm 55 a friend. But the psalm doesn't stop there. We need to learn from the rest of David, the second half of Psalm 55. How are we to respond? What is the other side of biblical lament? And this is my second point, which is more brief. Steadfast confidence in the Lord. Verses 16 through 23, like a typical lament, takes you from disorientation to reorientation. It is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Without the second half, it's not a biblical lament. I don't know how long that journey is either. I don't know how much time went by between verses 15 and 16. But if you're not ending up with trust, you're not lamenting, you're on the road to maybe apostasy or sin. Lament leads to trust. Even when you don't have all the answers, even when there's still tears filling your eyes, trust is where we end up, however imperfect the trust is. And so here, in these verses 16 through 23, the psalm gives us a correct understanding, a correct perspective, if you will, on this betrayal and this pain and this pressure. So what do we do? Friends, it's not magical, and yet it's really, really magical if we see this. In the midst of our suffering, whether it's betrayal or something else, what do we do? We pray and we trust. We cry out. That's pray. We pray 
as verses 16 and following open up in, in just a moment, we'll look at that. And we trust the Lord. We don't have all the answers, but I will trust in you. That's the last phrase of the psalm. We're not crying out in general. We're not just trusting the universe to work things out. It's in a person that we're trusting. The relational and sovereign God of the cosmos. So first, let's look at David's prayer, 16 and 17. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. David is praying, friends. He's talking to the Lord. He has been. The lament, the first half, is still prayer. But there's a turn here in which he's calling on the Lord. The Lord will save me. Notice the frequency in verse 17. When does he pray? Evening, morning, and noon. I could nerd out on that phrase for a while. It's fascinating to do a little biblical theology of of prayer through that lens. But what I want us to see for, for our purposes, for our application today, when David experiences the pressure of life, he's hit like a bus by this, this suffering and this betrayal and this pain. He prays, he prays, he prays, he prays. He cries out. That evening and morning rhythm is all over the scriptures. It starts with the priests. I'll come back to them in just a moment. The priests pray every night, every morning. They offer sacrifices every night and every morning. Evening, morning. I want to say more, but I won't. It's also picked up in a a later character by the name of Daniel. He's a prophet after the life of David. You know that he's taken into exile. He's taken away as a slave into a foreign land. And while in Exile in Babylon, you know about Daniel's story with the furnace and the lion's den, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. We often forget, though, that in the midst of all that pain and suffering, Daniel, it says, prayed in in chapter 6, prayed and gave praise to God every evening, morning, and midday. The application for us here in our lament and in our pain is an invitation Our covenant God says, come to me and pray. Pray hard, pray often, but be with Jesus in the pain. Evening, morning, noon, he's present and he hears at evening, morning, noon, and every moment and every hour of the day. Friends, community is vital for lament, but it's not enough. Got a therapist? Cool. Cool. Girlfriends and fellas in your life to assist you, amen. But have you prayed? The amount of times I'm sitting across someone either in a counseling or pastoral situation in which they've got all of those things, friends around, I'm journaling, I have breathing meditation things, and I'm seeing a therapist. Have you prayed? What? Why would it? No. Why? I've got a therapist. I've got community. I've got friends in my life. All of those things are good. Community, counselors, 
girlfriends, fellas in your life to assist you, friends. But I know my heart, having all of those things, and yet in the valley of life, I haven't been with God at all. And I've done all those things. That's not lament, that's laziness. Have you done business with God, as as our senior pastor Roger often sits across the table from someone and and opens that question? Whether you're in suffering, whether you're really struggling, have have you done some business with the Lord? Been with Jesus in the suffering? Have you prayed? I'm not talking about before meal prayer. I'm not talking about lazy, dozing off to sleep, bed prayer. Amen. Those are all fine. I'm talking about face prayer on your knees, calling the elders like we saw last week in the sermon, using an entire community group session. Hey, I know we had something planned. I need this time. I need prayer. I'm gonna skip the thing on the priests. It was really good, but basically it's like the evening, morning, and noon thing. I'm gonna do it anyways, we're all right. Evening, morning, and noon starts in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as a regular rhythm of the priests. They're slaughtering animals every night and every morning, and they're praying every evening and morning, and they're praising God through song and instrument and community every evening and every morning. What does the New Testament call you? A kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of priests, and we love that when we think of priests as equal access We have access to God. We don't have to go through any mediator, any human priest. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us. We love to think of ourselves as priests because we have access to God. He knows us. We've been given everything. We can be with the Lord and we're forgiven. Why I'm hitting at this, though, is that the priests had a job to do they had to still sacrifice the animal every night and every morning. They still prayed every night and every morning. We're forgetting the the duty, if you will, the effort of the priest of which we are. It's to pray every night and every morning. It's to offer praise to Jesus every evening, every morning, and every midday. Friends, we're just talking about the rhythms of life, what we call the spiritual disciplines. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's not just this New Testament verse where it's good to read your Bible. We have Bibles now, so read your Bible. It's a priestly duty to praise God, to pray, and to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving every night and every morning. It's our privilege. And it's a part of the job description of a kingdom of priests. Have you been with Jesus in the lament? Have we been with Jesus in the darkness? All right. As we're coming to a close here, I want you to see one other aspect of this prayer. Look at verse 22. This is probably what, if you had a paper Bible, this is probably what the psalm is named after. Because it's a famous verse. Might even be on your wall. And it's a beautiful verse. But it's even more beautiful than you think. Verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. That's good, that's good news. It's a beautiful verse because it's true. It's an invitation of God and a sweet promise. Come to me, 
But I don't want you to miss the fact here, because this happened to me this week as I'm prepping for this, and it might be happening to you. You might think, okay, Taylor, this is all good and all. David and lament, I get it. David's really got stuff going on, though. I've never had my son try to murder me. There are people in New City really, really suffering. My pain doesn't add up to theirs. So who am I to lament? My life's pretty good. Do you see John or Jill over here in our New City community? They're really suffering. Laments for them. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I get the temptation. I do. But brothers and sisters, the word burden there is too restrictive for what it actually means. It's a perfect translation. It's not a translation problem. It's an our mind problem. The word literally and simply means weight or load, no matter how heavy, regardless of the weight. When you see burden, you probably think really heavy. Roger's illustration last week, the strongest man in the, the world picking up a huge boulder, that's, that's a burden. I don't have that. No, no. Whatever the weight, whatever the load, the Lord wants it. Cast your burden on the Lord. Friends, what he's saying is the Lord wants your burden no matter what it is. There's nothing too small for the Lord. There's no burden too light that he doesn't want you to be in prayer about. And there's nothing too heavy that Jesus can't help with. The Lord wants you praying about anything in your life that is a load. A wayward child, that's a load. That's a burden. Suffering marriage, that counts. Scared of tomorrow, check. Betrayal of a spouse. Friend turning his or her back on you. That diagnosis, questions about faith, wrestlings with your doubt, that same temptation that keeps getting you. A pattern of sin in your life. Your loneliness, your feelings of inadequacy, your anxiety, these are all weights, loads, whatever it is, bring it to Jesus. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said that and he meant that back then and he still says that and means that right now from glory. You, child of God, little brother or little sister of Jesus, bring it to your king. And as you do, watch your heart be moved from from that darkness into a place of trust where the psalm concludes. Look at verse 23. You, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. David has no hope of their repentance. David has no hope of them changing direction. These men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. God invites us, he offers to us the ability to cry out to him as children. To name our frustration and our anger in prayer. And friends, he does that. 
God does that, invites us as the one who knows betrayal. He knows what it's like for his first creation in the garden to turn their back on God. Jesus knows what it is like to be betrayed at the hand of a friend. His name was Judas, who for a little bit of silver turned his back and betrayed his friend, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. And that betrayal led to very good news for you and me. Because in ways we don't understand, that betrayal was a part of God's sovereign plan. That betrayal led to a Friday night when Jesus would hang on a cross for the sins of humanity. For you, for me, whoever would trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness. That betrayal at the hands of Judas would lead to a Sunday morning when Jesus would burst forth from the grave, turning his grave into a garden and launching new creation conquering sin, absorbing the wrath you deserved, and destroying death, the last enemy. Praise the Lord. Because of that, we can utter with verse 23, whatever my lot in life, whatever burden I have, even when life is going sideways, and maybe it is right now, because of Jesus in his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection, I can say, but I will trust in the Lord. Even if I have to say, I will trust in the Lord with tears still in my eyes. Even if I have to say, I will trust in the Lord, and I'm not even sure I have much trust, but it's there. We're not saved, we're not rescued by the strength of our trust, but by the one in whom we are trusting. Let your lament Be what it ought to be, a prayer in pain leading you to trust wherever you're at on that journey and whatever the darkness is in your life. So friends, we conclude our time going to the table where we see the betrayal that Jesus experienced and endured in our place. The Lord's table. And this is a table where we see Jesus betrayed in our place condemned in our place because of betrayal. And yet we're also going to it happily and joyfully because his betrayal means life for us. But it's also an opportunity to come to Jesus with whatever you're wrestling with, with whatever's going on in your life, whatever thing that in your heart you're like, I want to lament because of this. I encourage you, whatever it is, silently and in your heart, name it as you come to Jesus. He's really here at the table. He spiritually meets with and communes with us at this table. So bring all that you are, all that you'll ever be, and all that you have and all of your burdens to Jesus now. It is a glorious invitation.